0: I've studied the form of comics into what you need is a hobby With words and pictures it could be more of an art form what the? F- are you talking about i don't know it's pretty goddamn weird a guy dresses up like a devil a blind lawyer you know we have to do aquaman no one with a lick of sense would watch that show the word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic and there are some people who fit that category i believe comics are a last link to an ancient way of passing on history you can put on a uniform for football year round nobody cares basketball year round nobody cares put on a star trek uniform people get a case of the giggles yeah hi somebody told me they make comic books here oh, that's from superman S- smallville you have been trying that jet mind shit on me since the eighth grade it doesn't work oh, it works you guys must read too many comic books or something people do not masturbate in the dc universe that was the biggest load of crap i've ever heard Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. And lately, that's actually taken the form primarily of talking about Batman comics. And specifically, what I've mostly been talking about is the 1995 Year One-themed Batman annuals. And the reason for that is because of the fact that I kind of went through a little bit of a... A Batman kick with my comic book reading a while back and I thought, you know, it would actually be a lot of fun to talk about some Batman circa year one types of stories. You know, basically, Batman during his first year on the job. I thought that might actually be a lot of fun to talk about. And so here we are. Now, the reason I sort of gravitated towards the 1995 year one annuals is because of the fact that I kind of regard the late 80s to maybe the late 90s, that sort of era of Batman as kind of my Batman, you know? Everybody who has any kind of fandom for Batman whatsoever, they tend to have a favorite era of Batman, and this one is without question mine. I mean, this is the Batman of my childhood. This was the Batman who's Adventures I grew up reading, you know, and some people call this asshole Batman, but whatever I like this era of Batman And so that's kind of what I gravitate to We're all products of our life experiences you see so anyway now As I was working my way through all of these different year one annuals I knew that I enjoyed these year one annuals, right? That was not a mystery to me. I knew that much coming into the thing, but notwithstanding, I got to tell you, for as good and enjoyable as these year one annuals have been so far, today's annual, man, this one's a cut above, but I guess I should probably stop talking around it and start talking about it. And so today's, today's comic that I'm going to be talking about this is detective comics annual number eight and the i guess in brief uh what this is all about is batman's first major conflict with and interaction with the Riddler. right so lots of fun on that Detective Comics Annual Number 8, according to Mike's Amazing World of D.C. anyway, was released on May the 9th, 1995. Cover price is $3.95. Story synopsis is as follows. The Riddler, occupying an observation room at Arkham Asylum, expresses his annoyance with the inept psychiatrist's attempt, or repeated attempts, to pierce his psyche, and so he decides to give them what they want. The story of his life how he became a criminal and why he repeatedly opposes batman as a child edward was a cipher ignored by even the playground bullies at his school hungry for attention especially with ignorant unloving parents the young edward began his career quote unquote in the sixth grade by cheating at a solve the puzzle contest by sneaking into the school the night before the contest He was able to practice solving the puzzle and easily won the contest edward's fame proved to be fleeting however and the young boy realized that to keep the attention he so craved he had to turn to his true talent cheating after graduating edward became a delivery man a job he found extremely tedious out of boredom and greed he began stealing from his clients but even this couldn't satisfy his ego eventually he donned the alias of the Riddler and started sending riddles to the police foreshadowing his future crimes. The Riddler's early career was fraught with many difficulties, missteps, and a narrow escape from Batman, but nevertheless, he managed to accrue a respectable amount of loot and two loyal henchwomen named Quarry and Echo. With Quarry and Echo, the Riddler came to the crowning caper of his early career a raid on the Reservoir Street Depository that completely misled the police and left him with $2 million. Once again, Batman narrowly failed to capture him, giving the Riddler a more impressive reputation than ever. Now overconfident, the Riddler planned an even bigger caper, stealing a set of Stradivarius violins from both a private collector and a public opera. Unfortunately, Batman quickly put an end to to this caper, handing the Riddler his first unqualified defeat. As he recounts his humiliation at Batman's hands, the present-day Riddler begins to have a meltdown. In a fit of psychosis, he breaks the one-way glass standing between him and his doctors, only to realize that his doctors had left on the lunch break. He'd been telling his life story to thin air all along. Orderlies rush in and subdue him, leaving the Riddler near catatonic, and muttering, No one there. No one there. No one there. On an endless loop. The end. So, what did I think? Well, guys, I gotta tell you, this may actually end up being my favorite of the year one annuals. And, like I say, all of the year one annuals are good. Don't get me wrong. I love them. But this one with all due respect to the to the creators of the other year one annuals this one really it's in a class all by itself you know and i would say that's even hinted at on the cover but certainly as you read the story you you get you get a better idea of what this comic is really up to you know but but the cover itself is just it it kind of gives you an idea of how much fun this thing is going to really be and in fact, I'd even go so far as to say it's a little bit deceptive in that in that sense. Um, it's basically the Riddler surrounded by his two malls. He's holding a remote control in his hand. He's setting off an explosive and behind him, it looks like Batman's getting blown up to kingdom come. So it's a neat and effective cover image. It doesn't, so, something like this, something similar to this happens in the story, but this isn't you know, a literal representation of anything that actually occurs in the story itself. But that's not a huge problem. The thing, though, is that, you know, you'd get the idea that this is a little bit more, that the story is a little bit, suffice it to say, something other than what is suggested by this cover. You know, you get the idea that you're getting a different type of story here than what you're actually getting so that's neither good nor it's bad. I just think it's a cool cover, you know, lots of fun. Actually, and you know what? I just realized I never even gave the, the credits here, so forgive me. The title of this thing is Questions Multiply the Mystery. Cover artists are Kieran Dwyer and P. Craig Russell, writer is Chuck Dixon, penciler is Kieran Dwyer, inker is Kieran Dwyer, colorist is Richmond Lewis of Batman Year One fame, letterer is Albert de Guzman, and editors are Darren Vincenzo and Scott Peterson. So, sorry about that, probably should have mentioned that a little bit sooner. But anyway, to get into the comic properly, page one starts with, it's, a sort of close-up of the Riddler, and he's saying, questions, questions, questions. I'm sick of all your questions. And that's just, first of all, it's kind of a funny thing coming from, coming from the Riddler of all people. But literally right from page one, what this kind of drives home is that, you know what, maybe Kieran Dwyer doesn't need to ink his own work, because I would say that a lot of his work throughout this entire comic, it's good and it's competent and it's fun, but I don't think it's everything it can be. It it looks a little bit stiff and cramped in a few places, you know, all through this comic. Whereas if you look at the cover, which was inked by P. Craig Russell, it was still drawn by Karen Dwyer, but it was inked by P. Craig Russell. It's got a little bit more dynamic uh, energy to it. It's got a little bit more life. And, you know, no offense to Kieran Dwyer, but I kind of have to wonder how much better this comic as a final product would be had all of the interior been inked by P. Craig Russell as well, rather than just having the cover inked by P. Craig Russell. So we'll never know, I guess. But there's something about Kieran Dwyer's line style It's good by itself, but he needs somebody else to ink his work for him, you know? And that's just how I view the situation. So, anyway, I don't mean that to insult Kieran Dwyer. I'm just saying I think his work is at its best when it's inked by somebody else. God, anybody else. So, anyway, basically what what we get pretty early on in this story is the fact that the Riddler... He's basically giving his life story, but we don't really know who he's talking to. You know, it's not really clear what this is all supposed to be about. But it is important to remember that he's wearing that that sort of Frank gorshin skin-tight bodysuit with a giant question mark on his chest and then tiny little question marks scattered all over the bodysuit with purple gloves. And he's also wearing the purple mask. It's important to remember that that's the way that he's drawn, you know, for a good bit of this portion of the story that takes place in the modern day. That's what he's wearing, because that's going to become important in just a minute. But anyway, we basically uh, get, I I would say, a heaping helping of the Riddler's backstory. And basically, he's a kid, he started off as a kid who wanted to know all of the answers to everything, you know? Why is the sky blue? Why are plants green? You know, why are things the way that they are, you know? And basically he he unfortunately for him was surrounded by people who just don't really have the time and the willingness to answer his questions and kind of be a mentor and authority figure to him. But looking at the way that things shape up with the Riddler, I think you're well justified by asking if just one adult or one teacher or either, ideally both, but either of his uh, parents had shown any kind of interest and investment in young Edward Nigma, what might have happened you know? Where might his life have led him ultimately if he'd had better examples and better role models to work with, you know? Somebody who really related to him. We'll never know. But you're well worth, it's well worth asking yourself that question because of the fact that he's, his backstory isn't really as dark and tragic as some other characters. But in its own kind of way, he's sort of a little bit of a victim of neglect, you know? Everybody has something better to do than talk to Edward Enigma, or they have something more important to, to, to say than answer his questions, you know? Most people can barely even remember his name, and that's if they remember he's there at all. I mean, his teacher, uh, right here on, on page 7 calls him Freddy, as opposed to Eddie, you know? So, but in the course of all of this, what we discover is that this is basically the story of Eddie's life. He he says, I was a cipher, a nobody, beneath the notice of even the school bullies, but I could solve that puzzle. The prize, the recognition. The other kids would remember my name. They'd sit with me at lunch. And right then and there, you get a pretty good window into what basically into what drives Edward Nigma as a person. you know what he wants is the attention he wants he wants the credit, he wants the recognition, you know, but what he kind of has to do is come face to face with certain realities. he says. But what, and this is on page eight, he says, but what chance did I have? A mediocre student, a faceless kid, as forgettable as the capital of Idaho. Tell you a secret. I'm an only child. Lots of times I'd hear my parents fighting. One night I crawled out of bed and listened. They were blaming each other for something. Really going at it. Dishes and pans flying. Know what? They were blaming each other. For me. And that's a lot, you know, for a kid to have to process. You know, that's a lot for him to have to live with. You know, the, this realization that neither of your parents love and value you. Now, guys, you know, I've said a few times that, you know, my parents made a couple of parenting decisions that I don't entirely agree with. But, guys, what you need to keep in mind is that fundamentally, my parents, they didn't just love me, they adored me, you know, and they were willing to make sacrifices for me, you know, for, so that I could have the things that I needed, that, you know, those were sacrifices that they were willing to make. My parents loved me, you know, and as a result, I mean, this is something that, you know, I grew up with a very keen awareness of the fact that I was extremely fortunate, you know, because a lot of kids, they came, they came from homes where their parents, well, were nowhere near the quality and caliber of my parents, you know, and this is something that kids are very much aware of. They know when their parents not just love them, adore them, you know, and, you know, Little Eddie Nigma. Well, as I say, you're well within your rights to ask what exactly might have happened if if he'd been given just any kind of affirmation from any kind of uh, authority figure, you know, adult authority figure anywhere. How much different might things have been, you know? It's a justifiable question to ask, put it that way. So anyway, so right here on page nine, Eddie thinks, uh, the Riddler says out loud, there was only one way I could beat the others. And it was then that I found my true calling in life, cheating. I put the puzzle together after 30 minutes and then 15 and then 10 and then five I assembled the puzzle six times in a row in under one minute. I thought that would easily earn me the prize. And so it did. But all glory is fleeting. A week later, I was nobody again. Everything was the same as it was. Except the bullies now noticed me. Bullies like the Batman. All my scheming and chicanery only served to bring calamity to me the Batman why am I talking about him this is my story my story my story mine run 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 all I do is run I'm tired of it really I am now where was I oh the contest right stupid puzzle yes my relentless childhood was over though nothing outward had changed I had won the prize a book more like a doorway actually I devoured it with the kind of attention I never wasted on my studies. It made me hungry for more. I had to know everything. I had to know everything there was to know about puzzles and traps and trickery. My favorite subject was the great Houdini. Old Harry and I share a talent. We both cheat. The secret to a good trick is fixing the solution ahead of time. Skill at sleight of hand is important as well. A skill that comes with time. And basically as he's talking and monologuing here, what we see him what we see is he's first checking out the book that he won as a prize, you know, that's filled with magic tricks and all this other stuff. You know, basically sleight of hand types of, you know, stage magician stuff, you know, that. And then he is carrying around larger piles of books that we can assume are all about you know magic tricks and you know escape type stuff and all of that. You know and you traps and whatnot. And basically, what what we get the what you can't help thinking is that you know Eddie Nigma as a kid is he's basically honing and developing his. His skills with sleight of hand and uh, just kind of simple stage magician tricks. And what we see on, at the bottom of page 13 is that he's not quite as good at the sleight of hand part as, as he should be, which is that gets him caught during one of his magic tricks, and then he ends up getting the shit beaten out of him. So, anyway. Later in life, and this begins on page 14, later in life, Eddie's working as a a delivery man, and this guy is just fucking bored, you know? This is a guy who's at the end of his tether. He's going through the motions. He is completely directionless at this time, and he doesn't know what he wants to do with his life until one day during a chance delivery uh, to one of his clients. He happens to glance over and sees what looks like a secretary or a a manager or something like that. Somebody, this woman is opening up a vault. Actually, it's not even a vault. It's, uh, It's this little safe. But you can see inside the safe that there's shitloads and shitloads of money inside the safe. And so what Edward does is he stakes the place out. He basically, as he puts it, he relies on his gift for the cheat. And he even goes so far as to say, I have no real skill but the fix. My mind bends around a problem, and I look for ways to change the problem. So basically what Eddie does is he stakes the place out, and what he does is he watches the woman open the safe a thousand times. He watches the movements that she makes on the, on the little dial, and he figures out what the combination is. But, And this is on page 15, but what he says is, there was no thrill to this. Where was the trick? Where was the respect? Simple theft wasn't a game. It was a job. I was going to have to establish a style. And so what we see on page 16 is... The a, a a police captain receives a, a page that's full of different riddles. What do you call twins both named Bill? That's probably the most important one for what we're going to be talking about in just a second. And the 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 cop is just staring at this thing. What the huh? And Riddler says, at first my cleverness wasn't appreciated, and. What we see is, a, is sort of a flashback to the Riddler pointing a gun at a cashier and, and who's saying, what are you waiting for? Here's the cash, you nut. And the Riddler is not even looking at her. He's standing around saying, actually, I was expecting somebody, but it's like nobody gives a shit. And he's standing outside of a movie theater. Double bill is what's printed on the on the little marquee outside. So what do you call twins, both named William double bill? Get it. So the Riddler says out loud, I had to work harder for their attention. And so what he does is he sends the cops another, another package with more riddles contained inside. And this actually ends up getting, uh, delivered to the chief detective midtown robbery, which is Jim Gordon. So, uh, the package, which is covered in question marks, explodes, and it's more like a confetti bomb than an actual explosive, and it sends all sorts of riddles flying through the air on these little parachutes, and it's, it's basically just full of clues as to his next crime. Why did the cottage go on a diet? When's the best time to go to the dentist? What day do soldiers hate the most? And Gordon has a pretty good idea of what this all means. Not so much the answers to these riddles and all that stuff, but more this is not a conventional Gotham City criminal that that they're going up against. This guy is different. He's another in a growing list of supervillains that are swarming the city. And Anyway, so Gordon basically figures he's got no choice but to somewhat play into the Riddler's hands, so he goes where he figures the Riddles want him to go. They stake the place out, and sure enough, a bomb gets set off, the police take cover, and the Riddler basically tries to flee the scene of the crime, carrying his loop whereupon he gets intercepted by the Batman who promptly goes on the attack and beats the piss out of the Riddler because this was something that he hadn't really counted on doing. Right here on page 20 the Riddler says, I'd read about him in the tabloids. I thought he was just an urban legend. A dystopic folktale like albino alligators in the sewer or the choking Doberman. But he was real. And basically what you figure out is that, number one, the Riddler wants the attention. He doesn't want to be able to just get away with crimes. He wants to turn it into a big spectacle, right? And number two, the cops really weren't getting the job done in terms of giving him all of the attention that he wants. And while the Batman kind of is, this is the tension that Nigma wasn't necessarily counting on, right? Because he pretty much gets the shit beaten out of him. And right here on page 23 is where we start. This is where the Riddler basically starts laying out uh, his agenda. Riddler says, oh, I proved my worth to him. I wasn't going to play second fiddle to the Joker or Two-Face or any of the wannabes. The Batman was the saint and devil to me, a foil to match wits against, but an adversary to be wary of. You dimwits think I create my riddles because I want to be caught. What naive pedestrian thinking. To me, crime is performance art. And that's what you psycho babblers share with the thugs of the world. Lack of vision. But I knew I'd need assistance to thwart the Batman. And then it just, it goes on from there. This is basically the Riddler explaining why it is that he does the things that he does. The Joker does stuff because he thinks it's funny. It's really as simple as that. He thinks all of this shit is funny, you know, and there is a performance aspect to him of what he considers to be the perfect joke. Two-Face does what he does because he's driven by basically, you could say, random chance. 50-50 50-50 odds of, will, of what will he do at the time that he plans to do it. Is he, in fact, going to do it? So on and so forth. The Scarecrow does what he does because, fundamentally, he's been bullied his entire life and he wants to bully back. He wants to be a bully rather than be bullied. Make sense? On and on and on. All of these characters have some sort of... I would say an almost... Ec- extrinsic purpose for what they're doing. The Riddler is kind of unique in the fact that in his manner of thinking, this is a little bit more of an intrinsic thing. He gets a special pleasure from doing this thing that Gotham City is famous for, which is putting on a costume and challenging the Batman. He gets a special pleasure out of that because he views this as more like performance art it's not necessarily about the stuff that he steals or it's not about you know wanting to uh somehow be the better man what he wants is the fucking attention you know he wants to be on some level what he wants is to be famous you know he wants everybody to know his name and he wants everybody to know that he's better than batman and so it's not necessarily crime per se that attracts him to this type of lifestyle. What he gets off on is the the chaos of it all. You know, the, the, the media firestorm that he creates. You know, that's what he enjoys. The fact that he's famous. The fact that everybody knows his name. And the fact that what he can do is he can have everybody wrapped around his little finger based on a few riddles that only he really understands. And so... That is basically the Riddler laid out on a slab. Now, to the best of my knowledge, the Riddler has never been written this way ever before. But Chuck Dixon comes along and basically finds this perfect way to characterize who the Riddler is and what he does. Because when you think about it, guys, the Riddler is kind of a goofy villain. You know, he sends riddles to the police or to the Batman or whoever that are practically guaranteed to get him caught because of the fact that, dude, if you warn people ahead of time what crimes you're going to be committing, that has a very good chance, from a statistical standpoint, that's got a very good chance of getting you caught. And to him, it's not about winning or losing. Or, I mean, it is, but victory or for that matter, defeat, is, is measured completely in how much media attention he gets. It's not about whether or not he gets away with the crime. That is beside the fucking point, you know? Yeah, he'd like the money, but that's secondary to the, to the spotlight, you know? And that's what he really wants. He wants everyone to know his name, and specifically, he wants everybody to know that he's smarter than they are. You know, and so he kind of used crime as performance art. It's a way of just, you know, causing trouble for everybody, you know. And that, oh my God, that is just an amazing way to write The Riddler, you know. I mean, he even says it. He says, to me, crime is performance art. And that's what you psycho babblers share with the thugs of the world. Lack of vision, you know. Here's a guy that looks down his fucking nose at people, you know, because in his mind, they're not on the same level as him. You know, they're not as smart as he is because they don't understand why it is that he does what he does, you know? Anyway, so I could go on and on and on about that all day long. So anyway, from there, the Riddler tries to recruit a gang because he basically needs, he needs muscle, ultimately is what it comes down to. He needs muscle and he can't work alone. You know, he needs a gang in order to be as effective as he can be. And unfortunately, he doesn't really get along with most criminals. So he's basically stuck doing these just stupid ass, boring armed robberies of convenience stores. And that might actually have been his entire life except that he ends up getting jumped by uh, these two gun-toting women outside of one of the convenience stores that he robs he gets robbed of the money he just stole and he even says but isn't that always how it is you stop looking for something and up it pops kindred souls and so he basically recruits these women, and they become his new gang. He And they're basically called Query and Echo. And he says, Query and Echo were eager accomplices, if a bit on the wild side. And you kind of have to figure, you know what, that's probably true. Just to look at them, I mean, these are chicks that are way the fuck out of Edward Enigma's lead, or league. So they would have to be a bit wild in order to have any kind of interest in Edward Nigma whatsoever. So, there you go. But they are nevertheless able assistants. And so, off the Riddler goes in terms of launching his career for for real. And what he does is he basically finds a way to uh, put up a crossword puzzle and... This is basically meant to be a puzzle for the police and for Batman to put together and give them, eh, give them a little bit of a clue as to what his next crime is going to be, right? And so what the Riddler has come to understand is, he, in fact, he even says on page 28, he says, My mission was twofold, to intrigue him and confound him. I had to be more circumspect, less obvious and more devious. I had to fall back on my true talent. Cheating. So basically what he wants to do is give a sense of misdirection. He wants to make it through a legitimate clue. I mean, this is the thing. This clue has got to be legitimate. But he sends, he he gives basically, and he drops enough of a, of a, Bread trail for the police and for Batman to, stri- to stake out the Basin Street Hotel, expecting that he's going to rob the joint. And then, what he in fact does is he robs a bank. He floods a bank vault, and then he, Query, and Echo, wearing their diving gear, their scuba gear, swim in there and rob the vault. And the beauty of it is, because of the fact that they're underwater, it's not like the police can come in there and stop them you know, which is irrelevant anyway, because they'd have to drive all the way across town in order to do that. And then on top of that, Riddler and his gun malls, they make their escape in a boat through the sewers. And this is just about perfect, right? Batman realizes what's going on. And so, you know, he manages to take out Query and Echo as the Riddler is speeding the boat through the tunnels But otherwise, the Riddler basically gets away with $2 million. And then later, Query and Echo catch up with the Riddler, and they're none too happy about it. They're actually kind of pissed off with him. But all is forgiven later on, especially because of the fact that what the Riddler says right here on page 42 is, he says, but besides the money and the satisfaction and giddiness, the Reservoir score had given me one other precious commodity, credibility. And basically what you see is a meeting of the uh, of the Riddler. And instead of wearing this sort of slap together cheesy-looking, homemade Riddler outfit, he's now actually got... You've seen it, that the Riddler on Batman the Animated Series wore this. It's, it's kind of a... It's, it's like a business suit. The green jacket is covered in question marks. His green tie is qu- covered in question marks. Um, his derby hat is... Uh, got a big question mark on it. He's got the, the black button-up shirt, the purple gloves, the, the question mark cane. I mean, he's actually looking kind of stylish, you know? And he's meeting with some, with some Gotham City criminals, and he's basically describing his next, his next little uh, uh, job here. He basically, uh, one of the criminals says, the depository job was sweet, Riddler. Had the cops going topsy-turvy. And another criminal says, yeah, let's hear your latest. We might throw in. And Riddler says, kidnapping. Some pampered little children. Easy to transport and conceal. The ransom would be in the millions. And now, these criminals don't want anything to do with that. He said, first off, one of them says, first off, everybody gets fucked on on these ransom deals, all right? Nobody comes out ahead. And then another one says, dude, you start doing kidnapping, the fucking feds get involved, okay? Fuck that noise, Jack. And... Riddler says, okay, you guys need to understand these babies are over 400 years old. And basically what he's talking about are these extremely valuable uh, violins. And so basically what the Riddler uh, does is he, sta- he, he, he plans a sort of dual stage robbery here. He robs a public opera, but also a private collection of these incredibly valuable uh, violins. Now, I'm no expert on violence, except for knowing that violins like this exist. I don't really know anything about violins. But, you know, you get the idea that, you know what, these violins are extreme. Some of them may actually even be priceless. And, you know, the Riddler takes one of them out out of a display case. And he says, you know, if one of these were to break and the owner says, no, that's an Amati. It's three centuries and then R- R- the Riddler smashes a vi- the violin uh, on top of a bust of what looks like Beethoven. And he says, oops. And you can... It looks like the guy just basically passed out from the shock of seeing that, you know, the owner of the violins. Um, and the Riddler, sitting in his cell, says... In the present day, he says, it went off like a symphony. Meaning his robbing the, the violins from the collector. It went off like a symphony. The second movement was more discordant, however. And basically when Query and Echo show up to pick up the the ransom for these violins, well, they get intercepted by the Batman. Put it that way. And it ends up basically just turning into a big fucking mess. And next thing you know, the opera, the Riddler shows up at the opera and the Batman in, drops in a smoke bomb and then attacks the, the Riddler's gang at the opera. <clears throat> and it's just not a pretty scene. Not a pretty scene at all. The Riddler even says, Then the Flatermouse crashes my premier. My He's my own personal gotterdammerung. Should have known he'd have a thing for Wagner. All gloom and righteousness. The ignominy, the humiliation... It wasn't the money I wanted. It, it wasn't the action that I sought. I just liked the attention, but not like that. And that's my story. And it ends here in Arkham, but only this chapter. I'll shake the dust off of this place, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Basically, the Riddler, <clears throat> he goes on, starting on, he goes off, let's see, starting on page 51, right? He goes off on this almighty rant. He gets more and more and more pissed off. And then finally, he picks up a stool, smashes it against the mirror, and then... Earlier in this story, what I said was, guys, what you need to remember is that in his... What what we see the Riddler wearing here is that skin-tight bodysuit. You know those tights, the leotard? The green leotard covered in black question marks with the purple gloves? That's what we see him wearing... Up to page 52. Then he smashes out the window. And what we see is a point of view shot from inside that little miniature office, the interrogation room, uh, that was separated from the Riddler by the mirror that he just smashed out. We see this point of view shot where literally one panel, you know, in one panel, the Riddler is wearing like his traditional Frank gorshin Riddler outfit. And then we switch to that point of view shot inside of the interrogation room looking out into the Riddler's cell and what we see is the Riddler's actually wearing his I don't know what you call it jail suit, his prison outfit that little uh, white jumpsuit that he's supposed to wear the, the uniform the prison uniform all of this or at least elements of this had been happening in Nigma's mind You know, throughout this whole story, you never really got the idea that the Riddler was insane as such. So it did. I mean, one of the questions I was asking myself is, why is this guy in Arkham Asylum? You know, it doesn't look like he's insane as such, you know. And then what we see is in his mind, he's always wearing his Riddler outfit. But what we see, starting on page 52, is the way that he truly is, the clothes he's actually wearing. And he's wearing his prison uniform. He gets dragged off to uh, solitary confinement. And, you know, he's, he's putting up a fight. He's kicking, he's screaming. So he gets drugged. And all he can say, he, he just keeps repeating to himself, no one there, no one there, no one there. And what we see in the hallway is that the, uh, the psychiatrist that we're supposed to be uh, talking to the Riddler, one of them says we were we were talking to him in observation room six, trying to talk. He's been catatonic all morning, so we took a lunch break. It's not like we were going to miss anything, and it kind of makes you wonder how much of this took place in the Riddler's mind, and how much of this is actually real. And <clears throat> you can't help thinking, you know what? This guy actually does belong in the fucking nut house. He needs to be in Arkham Asylum. He's fucking gone. This guy's... So, anyway, overall, this is a pretty fun story, but this is a kind of... I, I, guys, I can't just let this moment slide. On page 52, uh, in the second panel, the Riddler says, No snap judgments, question mark. And, guys, what you need to remember is judgment has one E in it. That's it. Only one. The word judgment... There's only one E in that word, but here, for some reason, judgments is spelled with two E's. So I don't know why. That's just one of those typos that just bugs the fuck out of me. Every time I see it, I don't know why, but there it is. So guys, just let this be a lesson to you. The word judgment, there's only one E in that word. That's it. So hope that helps. Anyway, but that's basically the end of the story. And like I say, this is uh, just an incredibly entertaining story. And it's kind of up for grabs now, just how fucking insane the Riddler actually is. And I just really dig this story. I dig this motivation for the Riddler. The fact that he views crime as performance art. That's just fucking perfect. I mean, guys, I wouldn't change a thing with that. You know, that is such an obvious... And I mean, the, I mean this in a positive way, but this—that that is such an obvious way to characterize The Riddler that I'm surprised it took as long as it did for somebody to figure that out. But leave it to Chuck Dixon, dude, because he never misses a trick. This is the perfect way to write The Riddler, and I just fucking adore it. It's great. Now, yeah, the art... The art really isn't everything that it could be. But guys, I'm more of a story kind of guy to begin with anyway. So... You know, I, <clears throat> the story is so well written that what I was eventually able to do was just kind of go along with the art. And guys, the art doesn't suck, okay? This is good art, it's just not as strong as I usually like. But Karen Dwyer is good. The problem, as I see it, is that he's not great. And this is a great story. I might have wanted a more dynamic and engaging penciler, but you know what? You can't have everything in life. And this art, it's not like Karen Dwyer stunk up the page or anything like that. This just isn't what I wanted, but this is still good. Hope that makes sense. Anyway, so that I think is pretty much the end of my Batman Year 1 mega series. So I got to tell you guys, this was a lot of fun. You know, I had a lot of fun, you know, reading these comics. And the reason for that is because I read these comics and then made a mega series out of it instead of making a mega series, planning it out and then reading the comics to have to go with it. That's why I did things the way that I did. in fact that's how I always structure my shows. I podcast about whatever comics I happen to be reading at the time you know so hopefully that all makes sense. I've had a ton of fun with this. this was a lot more a lot more fun actually than I was originally expecting and you know what I may actually revisit this at some point in the future. I don't know when, but there may come a point when I do another couple of episodes about. Batman in his first year on the job. I don't know when, especially since the next several episodes that I've got lined up are pretty well set in place here. I'm not sure when I'll have a chance to come back to some circa year one era type of types of Batman stories, but I may do that at some point or another in the future. But that, I think, is pretty much it for this comic, and as it happens, that's also pretty much it for me this week. So... Bye, everybody. I will see you next week.